It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from the stories in this week's edition. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on the menu this week, a blue period for China's art market, a poison test for shellfish, and a British political giant is laid to rest. But first, kill seven diseases, save 1.2 million lives a year was our cover line. A bold statement of intent to cleanse the planet of several viral and parasitic diseases, a goal now well within our grasp. Malaria is one of the worst examples of the damage that transmissible diseases can wreak. But it's not alone. AIDS carries off fit young adults by the millions and tuberculosis by the hundreds of thousands. Measles, whooping cough and diarrhoea together kill over one million children a year. Campaigning has brought down the number of deaths in recent decades, but an even greater prize may be within our grasp. To go beyond controlling infections and infestations, and instead to eradicate some of them completely by exterminating the pathogens and parasites that cause them. Our briefing this week put malaria's persistence into perspective. Malaria has killed people since the dawn of man. And explored a potential date for its final demise. The Gates Foundation, an important source of funds for anti-malarial research and control efforts, believes it can be eradicated completely by 2040. Time to get on with it then. While the world gets to work getting rid of parasitic diseases, we turn our attention to a tenacious politician who doesn't seem to be in any hurry to move on. As the crisis in Ukraine continues, an article in our Europe section reported on one clear winner who's emerged from the mess. Alexander Lukashenko, the mustachioed strongman of Belarus to Ukraine's north. Mr Lukashenko is a former collective farm boss who has ruled Belarus for 21 years. He stands for his fifth consecutive presidential term on October 11th. To no one's surprise, he will win. This may not be democracy at its finest. Elections in 2010 ended with a violent crackdown on protesters and the jailing of Mr Lukashenko's rivals. But this time the wily president has used the Ukraine crisis to pose as a statesman. In a war involving its two biggest trading partners, Belarus adopted a largely neutral stance. He offered his capital Minsk as a platform for peace talks. With such consistent success at the ballot, it seems he may already be grooming a successor to continue the reign. He travels everywhere with his 11-year-old son, who packs a golden pistol and expects to be saluted by Belarusian generals. Cyrillic power intrigues aside, another language was having its moment in the sun this week, as an article in our Asia section reported. As North Koreans were preparing this week to mark the 70th anniversary of the ruling Workers' Party with the usual display of bellicosity, the South had a day off to celebrate something indigenous, brilliant and pacific, their alphabet. 
crafted by a Korean king back in the 1440s, dissatisfied with what else was on offer. Known as Hangul, it consists of 24 elements that can be grouped into blocks of syllables. Some take the shape that lips and tongue form in speech. It is fantastically easy to learn. Mm, so said the article anyway. Though purists may shudder, over time foreign words have crept in. One alien word now doing the rounds is pulpa, a conflation of Black Friday, America's huge autumn sale, translated into Hangul. And perhaps consumerism has played its part too. Electronics and clothes are much in demand, another way for South Koreans to express themselves. One of the finer ways to express ourselves is through art, either by creating it or by purchasing it to personal taste. China is a country well aware of this, with a rich artistic history stretching back thousands of years. Though while the cultural heritage is clear, the prospects for China's art market are becoming cloudy, according to an assessment in our business section. Worldwide art sales are booming. They reached a record 51 billion euros, that's $65 billion, last year. But what was once the world's hottest market is decidedly cooler these days. Auction sales in mainland China were $5.5 billion last year, about 40% below their peak in 2011. Global sales of Chinese art and antiques were $7.9 billion, down 31% from three years earlier. A return to rapid growth seems increasingly unlikely. As the dragon runs out of puff, it isn't just GDP that's affected. Slower economic growth has sapped demand. An official crackdown on corruption and lavish spending has not helped. If some food for the soul is growing cheaper, there's good news for those of us concerned about food for the stomach. As an article in our finance section explained, the tumbling price of oil is taking that of crops down with it. Cheap fuel means cheaper food. Roughly 20% of the cost of producing grain comes from oil. Cheap oil also means less demand for biofuels, which in turn means cheaper food because of reduced appetite for grains used in biofuels, particularly maize. Not just a seedling business anymore. Biofuel demand, once an insignificant feature of food markets, now has a sizable impact. From 2000 to 2011, America went from using 6% of its corn crop, the world's biggest, to make ethanol, to 40%. It's worth bearing in mind that Mother Nature tends to have her say in financial affairs. The incipient El Nino weather pattern normally provokes chaos in agricultural markets. From the volatility of food markets, then, to the uncertainty of market food, in particular seafood. While shellfish are a useful and tasty source of protein, these filter-feeding mollusks can be a source of illness too. An article in our science section described a new detection method to help avoid such unintended consequences. A filter feeder lives, as the name suggests, by trapping and consuming particles, mostly bacteria and single-celled algae, suspended in water it pumps through its body. And if these particles are toxic, they can harm and occasionally kill a human who eats them. For this reason, in most places, in the rich world at least, bivalves intended for sale have to be tested before they go to market. Shipping all those shells off to the labs can be time-consuming and expensive. A new method uses antibodies to make a system similar to a pregnancy test. Its greatest advantage may be that because it can be done on board ship for an instant result, it shortens the time it takes for shellfish to make it from the seabed to the table.
A big fish left the British political pond this week, and our obituary paid respects to Lord Healy, a giant of Britain's Labour Party for many decades. Wherever he went, Dennis Healy took photographs. At summits, banquets and college dinners, what other guests saw of him was mostly a toothy grin beneath a large flashing lens, and over it those extraordinary eyebrows, God's gift to cartoonists, twitching up and down. He placed himself at a distance from events as photographers do, but politically he was always involved. At East London by-elections in the 1960s, he twice floored fascist hecklers with his fists. Colleagues were summed up unsparingly. Margaret Thatcher was Rhoda the Rhino, and her love for Milton Friedman's economic policies, sadomonetarism. Healy relished politics, but he was best known for being the politician with Hinterland. He slipped away from an IMF meeting in Washington to hear a Ravel opera, played truant from a summit at Rambouillet to catch the scenery, and even nipped off to the Edinburgh Festival as Stirling crashed. His enjoyment also stands as a lesson to other politicians. Experience as much as you can about the world around you. He was asked in old age what advice he would give to students of politics. His answer was one word. Live. Eat, drink, fight, love, work, travel and take photographs. Sound advice for the non-politicians among us too. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu in London. This is The Economist. The Economist.